0: Oh, that's a fun way to go, isn't it? Well, uh, great morning we've had so far, and thank you so much for our team leading us once again. And uh, yeah, feel free. They, uh hey, thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. They do a fantastic job in in leading us i don't know about you but there's just a certain amount of excitement in the air not only from from stage but just for those who are getting baptized today so excited to get into that water to dunk a number of you to get bit by the fish it's going to be a great day um here's something else that happened today that is part of our community at our indonesian campus Pastor Kelly spoke, which would have been last night for us, but for them it was, it was today. And uh, 17 people who were Muslims came to Jesus today at our central campus, yeah. So God is moving and shaking all over the world and what a joy it is for all of us to be part of this central community. And uh, we are now officially launched Summer. Summer started this last week and uh, with the summer comes a, a new series and today I get the joy and privilege of kicking off our summer series called Mixed Tape. How many of you remember Mixed Tapes? Wow, there's not a lot of you. We've got a couple uh, younger generations in here. Some of you are like, I don't really know about that. Uh, Some of you may know about it because you had to do a history report on it. Uh, But mixtapes were these things that we used to do to collect our favorite music. And you'd have like these cassette decks and you'd have one tape in and you'd start recording on another one if you were recording from the tape or maybe Casey Kasem right oh yeah now we're going back there and then the top 10 is coming on and so you're you're ready at the tape deck to hit record you have to like play record at the same time remember this and then the song is over and there's a commercial so you have to unrecord it so that you don't record for commercials because man you've just got precious tape space right and you want to pack it in with as much music as you can well we were kind of like running with that idea because this summer starting today for june and july we're doing the uh there's just this understanding of a number of us are teaching and the teachings we're doing don't necessarily fit together like you know a, a mixtape is kind of a hodgepodge right you've got some artists and certain styles of music and, and what we wanted to do was to say okay let's have a number of teachers from central teach this summer and let them teach what they're like really passionate about and it's probably not going to be connected to any upcoming series, so, so what if we just kind of put them all together and just gave teachers just a, a shot at giving one of their best things, the thing that they've been wrestling with, the things they've been, been wanting to share. So, so that's going to be the, the idea, and I get to kick things off, and I thought, how cool would it be to kick off a series like Summer Mixtape looking at a crazy, unique, and bizarre story from the Bible that most everybody has read, but maybe we just don't know what to do with. So uh, I thought that'd be kind of fun. So that's what we're going to do. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 22, and that's where we're going to camp today. If you need a copy of scripture, uh, sometimes we know on mornings you're kind of racing out of the house and you forget your Bible, no worries, or maybe you're like, oh, I'm tired of using my phone, I'd rather use the physical thing. You can throw your hand up and our fine ushers will get you a copy of scripture and we are going to go to page 157 in that and as you are hunting down numbers 22 let me just give you a quick context of where we are in the midst of the narrative so that when we dive in you're caught up to speed on where things are at Uh, let me just show you on a map here israel has just come out of the desert they were rescued and redeemed from their slavery In Egypt, they've spent 40 years in the desert, and now they're getting ready to go into the land. And when we've talked about the Israelites crossing the Jordan River, the event that we're going to talk about precedes that, just a little bit beforehand, precedes that event. And here's what God has said I want you to come into the land, but I want you to come in from the east. And as you come in, I want you to skirt Edom and Moab and the region of Ammon. I don't want you to take anything from their lands, go around them. And the reason why God has them do this is because these are distant relatives of the Israelites. Uh, Moab and Ammon and this region and the descendants thereof um, are connected to Abraham's nephew Lot. And Edom is actually Abraham's grandson, who was known as Esau, his descendants became known as Edom. So these are distant relatives and God goes, I don't want you to take anything from their lands. I care about those people. So go around them in order to come in on the east side of the land of Canaan. Well, once they do that, they end up having to fight a battle against what's known as the Amorites. And then still on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they head up north and they take out Og, king of Bashan, two critical battles that they have to fight in order to get these people off their back so they can go into the land and set up shop where God has asked them to do that. And it's with this context in mind that we pick up our story because the Israelites have now just settled in a place called the Plains of Moab. So notice this with me, verse one of Numbers chapter 22. Then the Israelites traveled to the Plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that the Israelites had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. Just a quick note, the word terrified, so many, and dread are three words or phrases that show up in Exodus chapter 1, the same language that Pharaoh uses when he is concerned about the Israelites and now wants to do something about it. Same language here. There's an echo going on. Verse 4. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ock licks up the grass of the field. So Let's pause for a quick moment. The Israelites, they're on the plains of Moab. Let me show you a picture here coming from the the west looking east. You have the Jordan River there in the middle of the photo and you can see the mountains in the background. The plains of Moab is this 10 mile stretch going from the north end of the Dead Sea, which is on the right side of our photo, to the left, 10 miles north. It's a big flat area and you can kind of see what it looks like Uh, today from ground level so big beautiful flat area and then up on the mountains there again up on the mountains looking down on the plains the king of Moab is a guy by the name of Balak and he's looking down on the Israelites and he's not convinced that the Israelites are going to leave them alone yes the Israelites have circumnavigated around them but his concern is is that they're going to turn around come right back up into the hills and attack the people of Moab and so the king of, of Moab by the name of Balak says, well, I've got to do a preemptive strike here. But he knows about the Amorites. He knows about the Israelites. And so he is concerned and he's trying to figure out, well, what can I do? So he's going to hatch a plan to deal with the Israelites. Notice with me verse 4, the second half. It says, so Balak son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the Euphrates in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to us. Come now and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land for I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. So here's Balak's big plan. He's gonna hire an internationally renowned Prophet slash seer slash sorcerer. It's a guy by the name of Balaam. Now, this sorcerer, prophet, seer is kind of all wrapped into one. He's very multifaceted, kind of an individual. This is a pagan prophet. So this is not a prophet of God, this is a prophet who is for hire that if anybody needs something done, the understanding was is because of who Balaam was, he had a connection to the gods and goddesses. And so for a fee, he will, uh, he will work on behalf of a certain god or goddess to do something that you want. And all wrapped up in this idea of being a prophet who's got a connection to the gods. He has this understanding of how do you discern the will of the gods? Will you do this through certain types of viewing animal parts or phenomenon in the sky or animal behavior? Because in order to be a seer in the ancient world, it was understood that you could understand animal behavior. And what's more, he's a sorcerer. This is what's being referenced here, particularly by Balak, which is he can curse people. People believed he had a certain power that he could curse a people group or curse someone and ill effects would come to these people. Now, if you just momently just kind of sit back and go, ah, it sounds a little bit hoaxy-like. Here's the issue with that. This guy is well known. He is so well known that, get this, this place up here in Petra where he's at, our story is taking place right here this distance is 450 miles away that Balak is willing to send messengers to, to get him to come down to curse the Israelites. That's a long distance. If you're walking that, it takes you almost a month to do that. And apparently he's so well known that Balak goes, well, get me Balaam. And Balaam is more than 450 miles away. Here's what we also know about the international renownedness, I don't know if that's a word, but we just made it one, um, of Balaam is that here at a place called Sukkot, it's the modern site called Der Allah. it's a tell today, biblical site of Sukkot. It looks like this. In this area right here in 1967, there was an inscription on plaster found that you can actually see in the museum in Amman, Jordan today that references Balaam, son of Beor, who was a prophet. Friends, this is more than 400 years after Balaam dies. People are still talking about him four centuries later. He's incredibly well known. And he's so well known that Balaam goes, I need to hire him. I need to get him down here to help me with this people. And one other kind of fun fact, Balaam is his name in Hebrew, Balaam. It is a phrase or word that can mean in this phrase, devourer or destroyer of a people. And Balak goes, I'm hiring that dude because I need him to weaken the Israelites so when I give my preemptive strike against them, I can take them out. So this is the plan he hatches. So Balak is gonna send messengers to Balaam. Verse seven, the elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you the answer the Lord gives. So the Moabite officials stayed with them. So again, Balaam is a prophet. He is a pagan prophet, but he knows something about God. This would be in his business to know who's the God of all the people groups. So in case anybody hires me to help them, I have to have some proficiency, some kind of connection to them. How all of this works, not entirely sure, but we know that he somehow knows who the Lord is. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. Verse 9, God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men? Balak will then give him the story, or Balaam will give him the story, and then verse 12, God will say this, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. Now, this blessing and cursing thing has already showed up a couple of times. It showed up earlier in what Balak was asking Balaam to do. I want you to curse these people. And God goes, don't do it. Do not curse them. They are a blessed people. Now, when anything shows up multiple times in the text, you've heard me say this many times before, take notice of it. It's trying to put you into a context of a larger story and help us to understand that there's other pieces we need to make sure that we're privy to. Anytime you're talking about blessing or cursing in connection to the Israelites, we're supposed to run immediately to Genesis chapter 12 because this is where God calls Abram and says, I want you to leave your land and family, go to the land that I will show you, I will give you a new land, I will give you a new family, and then these are the words that follow behind that. God says to Abram in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God says to Balaam, don't go. Don't mess with these people, Balaam. They are a blessed people. And I do not want you to curse them. Now, why is God saying this? Because according to this passage, it'd be like God saying, Balaam, if you curse the people, I'm going to have to curse you. I'm gonna have to curse the Moabites as well because they hired you and what we've already seen in the story is that God has a particular affinity to the Moabites so much so that he tells Israel when you go past their land, go completely around their land, don't take anything from them. God cares about the Moabites but the thing that God is reminding Balaam here Is that god is going to be particularly protective of the israelites because god's plan is running through them they are the plan there is no plan b and if you recall last fall when we did the entire bible in 73 minutes and we put this in the context of the entire narrative of scripture genesis 12 is very early on god has a plan in place for the restoration of all things and god has to make sure the plan doesn't get derailed And so God says to Balaam, don't touch this thing with a 50 foot pole, just completely walk away. Notice how Balaam responds to God's words. Verse 13, the next morning Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned, right? 450 miles back to the king with not good news. And they said, Balaam refused to come with us Then Balak sent other officials more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak son of Zippor says, do not let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people. Okay, so another delegation is sent, 450 miles, more numerous, more distinguished, and yet they come with this blank check proposal. Before, yes, they would have paid him handsomely because, by the way, this is an issue of national security. They're willing to pay lots of money, but now they come with a blank check. And they said, Balak really wants you, Balaam. Then this is what Balaam responds with verse 18. But Balaam answered them, even if Bala gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to to go beyond the command of the Lord, my God. It's interesting. Now it's his God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. This is where it gets a little bit interesting. God has already said to Balaam, dude, you're not going. I don't want you to go don't touch this thing, don't mess with this thing whatsoever. They come back, more numerous, more distinguished, and they got a blank check in their hand, and they're like, you sure? You sure, Balaam? He's like, hey, why don't you spend the night? I'll go see if there's anything else God would like to tell me, i.e., maybe God will change his mind. Maybe God wasn't serious the first time around. And then we read this. That night, God came to Balaam and said, since these these men have come to summon you go with them but do only what I tell you verse 21 Balaam got up in the morning saddled his donkey and went with the Moabite officials and then get this but God was very angry when he went now I don't know about you I'm a little confused in this moment right because just a little bit earlier verse 12 God said do not go with them But then Balaam goes, hey, just hang around for the night. Maybe God will change his mind. And then God says to him, okay, go with them. And then right after this, we find out that God is angry that Balaam went with him. And you stand back and you go, God, help me out a little bit. You're feeling a little schizophrenic here. Like, don't go. Yes, go. No, don't go. Now I'm angry that you went. What is the deal with God? Well, the answer is in the language. The language will help us understand why God is frustrated with Balaam. This phrase with them in verse 12 in Hebrew is this word imahem. And imahem carries this connotation of going physically and mentally. Physically, we understand mentally in the, in, in the understanding of to fulfill the purpose with which they're hiring you for. And God says, I do not want you to go with them, either physically or to accomplish the purpose that they're hiring you for but then when God says in verse 20 after Balaam's like well I'll just ask God again maybe he'll change his mind it's like God's picking up on the fact that Balaam really isn't going to take no for an answer like Balaam is like yeah I'm not really down with what you want me to do God so when God says go with him it's not the word emahem it's this word etam and etam carries the connotation of yes physically but not mentally it's like God says to Balaam dude if you want to go okay just go Apparently my words aren't holding true for you, but just, just go. But you will not do what they want you to do. You can go with them physically, but not to achieve the purpose for which they're hiring you for. You see, it says that God was upset when he went. The word went is this word halak in Hebrew. Let me hear you say the word halak. Halak is a word you've probably heard and probably said many times in services before because it's one of the most important words in the entire Bible. The word halak means to live or to go, but its root definition is to walk. And in the biblical consciousness, how you walk is a reflection of how you live, how you live is a reflection of how you walk. So it's never just about a physical walk, it's about a conduct of your life. This is why we'll say to people, hey, walk the talk right? You're going to say this is how you're going to walk. Well, actually live that out. And God is angry with how he's halakking, with his conduct here. And from the language we know, it's because he's going physically, but he still wants to go to achieve the purpose to get his blank check signed with whatever number he wants to fill in. And God is upset with his conduct now peter one of jesus's disciples several hundred years later like somewhere in the vicinity of maybe a thousand years later not just a little bit later but like a while later will say this about religious leaders in his day but he's going to make a comparison back to balaam and this story notice second peter 2 with eyes full of adultery they never stop sinning they seduce the unstable they are experts in greed and a cursed brood They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. He loved the wages of wickedness. And so Balaam's off. And God's gonna make it undeniably clear he is not giving Balaam divine consent to go do what he's gonna get paid to try and do. Notice how it continues. Then it says this, uh, verse 22, but God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in its hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam and he was angry and beat it with his, with his staff. So uh, let me show you a good picture of a donkey here. He looks like he's laughing or singing or something like that. Balaam is on a donkey. And he's riding along a path, and an angel of the Lord stands in the path, and the donkey sees the angel and is able to go around the angel. Then it goes to a place where there's a wall on one side and a wall on the other side, and there's still enough room that the donkey this time, even though the space is getting a little bit smaller, is able to navigate around the angel. All the while, Balaam doesn't know what's going on, and he's just beating the snot out of his donkey. Finally, they come to a place where it's so tight that the donkey can't move one way or another Now a buddy and and I were on a field study several years ago And we couldn't find a donkey and we found a really close in close place I was like, okay, dude You got to help me out so I can use this as a visual at some point in the future when I teach this and so this is what we came up with (laughs) My buddy Matt he's glad I probably didn't have a stick because I probably would have beat him with that but you come to a point point. Where the, where the donkey can't go around anymore. So the donkey just sits right down and Balaam just starts beating that donkey ever more. And then the story gets even more bizarre because notice what happens next in verse 28. <clears throat> then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Okay, we have a donkey now talking for crying out loud. Now to adults, we hear this story and we're like, donkeys don't talk. Like this is such a hard sell for adults. But for kids, they're like, of course donkeys talk. We've seen this before. For kids, they hear this story and they're like, oh yeah, Shrek, been there, done that. Of course, donkeys talk. But for adults, we go, come on, that doesn't happen. Um, You're right. You're right. It, it, It doesn't happen without God's divine involvement. You see, what the text says for us is in verse 28, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And there's a bit of, of humor going on here because you have Balaam who is this prophet who's supposed to be well in tune with the spiritual world and yet it's his donkey that is more aware than he is And so God opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey starts talking. Yes, very bizarre, talking to Balaam. Well, but what I find bizarre on top of bizarre is that Balaam starts talking right back to the donkey like it's an everyday occurrence. Notice what happens next. Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord, who opened the donkey's mouth, opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times i have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me the donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times if i had not turned away i would have certainly killed you by now (laughs) but i would have spared it i would have taken you out because your path is reckless and you are totally going against everything I'm asking you to do. But the donkey I would have spared because the donkey is at least doing what's right. What a weird and bizarre story. Who has as its central character as you get further in the story, none other than a donkey. Now we've shown a picture of a donkey already. I wanna show you a couple more pictures of a donkey because in this story, when you begin to understand the paradoxical nature, there's a lot of humor here. There's a lot of funny aspects of what is going on because the polarization is so drastic. Donkeys themselves, they're, uh, they're not all that bright. I mean, you just look at them and you go, you don't seem to be all that bright. And they're not. I mean, they're great animals and they carry things and they carry people and they, they plow and they, they do things like that. But when you get really close to a donkey and you kind of look at its eyes, it's almost like they secretly say back to you, hey, there's not go much going on between these ears. Right? I just, and yet <laughs> the donkey is being contrasted with Balaam here. And and the polarization is just very humorous. Let me show you a little bit of the paradoxical nature of what's going on here. First of all, you have an internationally renowned seer who is supposed to be able to have a somewhat of an understanding with animals and to be able to control them or to understand them in one way or another. And yet the dude can't even control his own donkey. Then you have this infamous prophet who is supposed to have a window into the spiritual world to be able to connect to all these gods and goddesses for whoever's willing to pay the highest, but he has a window into the spiritual world, and yet the dude can't even see the angel on three separate occasions until God gives him the ability to see it. What's more, and I find this one most fascinating, is that you have a male human being and you have a female donkey. Now the word for a male donkey is hamor, but the word used in this story is aton, which means a female donkey, which tells us that in this story, she is more perceptive than he is. And all the ladies are like, well, tell me something we don't already know, right? Right? It's this woman in the ancient world did not carry a lot of weight. So apologies to you women. Good thing the world has started to wake up to that very poor reality for so long. But women did not carry much of a voice. And yet in this story, we have a female donkey who is more perceptive than the internationally renowned, seer, infamous prophet. And God uses a donkey to speak into Balaam's course in life, such a bizarre story, and there's so many different ways you can begin to understand. Okay, so where can you take this? Well, yeah, God, if God can use a donkey. God could use anybody to get through to us. But I want to kind of step back for a moment, and this is one of those stories that oftentimes for adults we just kind of pass by. Uh, how many of you have heard this story before? in some way, shape, or form, sometime in your life. Probably probably many of us in here have done so. And we often read it because it makes a really good kid's story and we like the idea of a donkey talking and, and all that, but we don't really look deeply into this story to say, so what about this story is me? Where do I find myself in a story as bizarre as this? Well, here's the question I just wanna ask. The question is this Why did it come to this for Balaam? Why do we have to have a talking donkey? Why does God have to respond in this kind of a way? Uh, maybe we could just say, as a follow up, connected question to this, is what was Balaam's issue? What was his issue that things had to come to this? Well, I think there's probably a number, but, but one in particular. I think sits at center stage of the story. And and I believe this is Balaam's issue. Balaam didn't like hearing the word no. I've got four kids. I've been a dad now for eight years. And uh, I'd like to think that as, you know, the longer you're a parent, the more wisdom you begin to obtain. Because when you first start out, I mean, you just don't know a whole lot, do you? I mean, I'm still shocked that the people let us leave the hospital with our child going home. It's like, seriously, you're going to entrust this thing to us? Like, is there an owner's manual anyway? I mean, how do you do this? But the longer that you're a parent the more you begin to pick up on how to be a good mom or a good dad. Uh, So much so that I had to learn this uh, a bit of the hard way with my oldest, Denyon, is that Denyon would come in and he would begin to ask me a question. And in my early days, I would just start answering the question that he had. And then I grew in wisdom and understanding and realized that when my son asked me a question in good parental rabbinic fashion, I needed to respond to his question with a question. And the question became this. Have you already asked your mother this? (laughs) Okay, so apparently this has happened to some of you. Right, you start asking this question before you even answer the question because I began to realize this question had already been asked in the house and my son got the answer no. But he didn't like what mommy had to say. He felt mommy got it wrong so he sought out a second parental opinion on the matter. Why? It's because we don't like hearing no. I mean, even my year-and-a-half-year-old, one of the first words that he learns is no. And it's the first word now that gives him like allergic reaction when he hears it. It's like we're so anemic to it, particularly as kids growing up. God told Balaam no, because there was a larger story at play. There were lots of things that Balaam didn't understand and God's no was for the betterment of Balaam for the betterment of Moab and for the betterment of the Israelites and yet Balaam struggled kids let me talk to you just for a few moments I remember this very well as a child (laughs) I didn't like my parents saying no I often felt like they were trying to strip me of my fun Uh, Sometimes I I felt like um, they were just trying to to take away any joy that I wanted to have. I didn't understand. Understand that as parents, when your parents say no, it's not because they're trying to ruin your fun, take away the joy of the start of your summer, or to make your life miserable. Parents say no because they believe it is the best thing for you to hear with respect to that circumstance or situation. Parents have been around a lot longer. They know a lot more. Now, do we always get it right as parents? Of course not, that's obvious. But the majority of the time, no is because there are good reasons behind it. Just recognize that a no can be something very, very helpful to you. As kids, we don't like hearing no, but you know what? (laughs) The same applies for us being adults as well. That there are times when God speaks into our story, God speaks into our situation and God says no. And almost in a very childlike response, as adults, we do for God what we tried to do with our parents. We come up with these excuses or these reasons of why things aren't, like, they're, they're totally missing the boat. So, so there are times where God tells us no, and our response to God is to come back at God and say, um, well, God, you know, this, this thing, it's, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. Or we may say things like, but God, that's just how I was raised. Like, that's the household I grew up in. Like, old habits die hard. Like, that's just the way that I've always been. That's just how I was raised. Or we may come back to God and say, but God, those are just accepted business practices in our world today. That's just how everybody does it. And it's almost like we come with enough rebuttals to God thinking God's going to change his mind on the no he has already given to us that if we just put forth the best arguments or a number of arguments, there's going to actually be a point where God goes, you know what? Like, you're totally right. Like, I just totally didn't have all the pieces together. I didn't take into the entire situation. You know what? You're right. That is how you were raised. So that does make it okay. Or yeah, that is how business is done today, and that's totally fine. Or yeah, that's just how all of your friends do it, and then so that makes it acceptable. When God says no, God's not trying to ruin our fun. God's trying to speak a word of life into us that can feel very abrasive up front, because we have a limited understanding of just the impact our decisions are making. And God is stepping in love, into our situation in love, to help us. We don't like hearing the word. No, we're Balaams. I mean, where do you find yourself being Balaam in this way? Where Has God maybe spoken to you, or God's telling you right now, a no, a no, a no, and yet you keep pushing back, pushing back, pushing back? It's because we just have this innate sense of, we don't like hearing the word no. But here's where this starts to translate into other aspects of our life. On the one hand, we don't like hearing the word no, but on the other hand, as a result of the fact that we don't like hearing the word no, guess what word we also don't like to say? No. Because we don't like hearing no, we actually struggle to use the word no. So maybe some of you, you, you're on a particular team, right? You, you're, you either run a business or you're a team leader um, in your place of work, and you have somebody on your team who is really good at what they do. And as a result, they make the company lots and lots of money because they're really good. There's a little shady side to how they do what they do. And maybe you're not willing to step in and say no, like you're really good at what you do, but we will not conduct our business this way. This is not how we're going to run things. And yet, because they're really good at what they do and they help the company out financially in a very extensive way, we're not willing to say the word no. Or perhaps it's with your spouse. Maybe there's an aspect to what they do that is a hindrance to you, a hindrance to your family, Uh, but you don't want to upset the apple cart, or there are some other things that this person does really well, and so you don't want it to kind of feel like it's tinting with the good things that they're doing, and so you don't step in, and you don't say no because you don't want to either offend them or upset the apple cart or whatever the case may be, and as a result, you're not willing to use the word no. The summer has already begun. Maybe for some of you, you've already found yourself in, you know, getting a little bit bored and maybe your friends are saying, what if we go do this or what if we go do that? And there's a sense in your own spirit where you're like, you know, I, I, I'm willing to bet that's probably not the best decision to make. Um, but because I don't want to feel left out, you don't use the word no. Or, or perhaps you're a parent and uh, you have this really deep desire that your kids like you. You know that they love you, but you really, really want them to like you. Maybe you want them to make them feel like uh, that you're hip, you're cool, you're, you're not as old as maybe as you feel, or there's not as much of an age gap. And so as a result of trying to live into the friendship relationship with your child, you have been saying yes, or you've been silent on a number of things that you need to say no to. Friends, saying no can be one of the most freeing things you ever do. It's one of the most powerful words you can ever say. But the problem for many of us is because we've had an anemic reaction to hearing the word no ever since we were a child, that as we've grown, we've never had a proper relationship with the word no. And we don't receive it well, and we don't speak it well. If anything, this story teaches us, I believe that this story teaches us to learn to say yes to no, to embrace this word, to recognize that it can be one of the most helpful, beneficial words we ever use and to realize that we actually have the strength to say no. This is one of the most amazing things about the Christian walk, is that as the New Testament unfolds for us, and as Paul helps us to understand our relationship to sin on the other side of the cross, is that formally Paul will tell us that we said yes to sin because that was our nature, our broken nature, our inclination is to say yes to the sin to not to say no to those things that are negative, but to say yes to those things. But what Paul will tell us is that in the power of Christ, because Jesus broke the power of sin in death on the cross and the resurrection, that what we formally said yes to in our sinful nature, because of the power of Christ working in us, we can now say no to it that Christ works in us and through us so that in freedom, we can say no. We often think that freedom is being able to say yes, but in the biblical consciousness, just on the other side of the coin, is being able to say no is just as much freedom, maybe even more freedom than being able to say yes. And the question becomes for all of us is, what kind of a relationship will we have with no? And maybe we could just end with these two questions as a way of kind of pulling this all together. Where where are you not hearing no well? Like, is there anything in your life that God is speaking into that you've been rebuffing against, that you've been struggling with, that you've been coming back with rebuttals to God because you don't like the no that God is offering you? Maybe as a child, your parents have said no to something and you are really struggling with that decision. Uh, Why? What's inhibiting you from accepting that decision? Uh, is there any way in which your spouse has been talking to you and saying, "Listen, no more. We're not going to do this anymore in our family," and you've been and you've been very, um, I don't know, passionate in your response of disliking what's being offered, and maybe. Uh, uh, on a different, not just hearing the word no, but, but maybe we could also this, where do you need to say no? Where do you need to say no? With your friends, um, with an offer, with anything, We're so good at saying yes, but we're not good at saying no. But God helps us to understand in this story that no's are really, really important. And I believe that the better that we get in saying no, the more yeses we get to say things that are going to be infinitely better for us even if we just don't know it at this time learn to say yes to no it's one of the most valuable assets we have let's pray god it is indeed a interesting story to say the least God it's a story that reminds us through the eyes of Balaam that we don't have everything figured out that oftentimes maybe what we think is isn't what we thought and God we are grateful that you are a God who speaks and that God you speak to us in the most unique ways whatever's going to be most helpful to get across to us God you you often choose that avenue and uh, we're grateful. We're grateful that you are a God who speaks. God, in all honesty, we would all probably raise our hand if we were asked, do we struggle with the word no? In some way, shape or form, we, we struggle hearing the word no. Uh, we struggle with saying the word no. And oftentimes no becomes a, a negative connotation to us but God I pray that that today has helped us to see the word no in a different light that we would learn to say yes to the no's and that we would recognize that those no's are there for our benefit for our help help us to see beyond our immediate circumstances give us eyes to see that which we don't currently see or give us the faith that we need to move forward even when we don't fully understand And may we recognize that you are a God who desperately desires the best for all of us and that when you speak into our lives a word of no may we rejoice that you are a God who cares enough to speak a God who cares enough to say no and to recognize that your no gives us a yes and something that's going to be so much better so God we love you and we bless you and we pray that in any way that your spirit has worked today in our lives that we would discern your spirit's movement, the prodding in our heart, where we need to hear the word no, where we need to speak the word no. And would you give us the courage to walk that out in obedience this week? We love you and we bless you. And we thank you that even a bizarre story like this can hit home so intimately. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, why don't you uh, stand if you can and let's close with a word of blessing, shall we? Um, I believe uh, Craig mentioned this in the first service that if indeed uh, the thunderstorms come through closer to the time of baptism that we're going to let people know if, for some reason, it's a torrential downpour. There's lightning everywhere. We're not going to obviously subject people to that. Not ask them to come out, and bring out their golf clubs, anything like that. Uh, on the top of our website, there will be a red banner that will let you know if things are canceled. But we're going to try to stick it out. We're going to kind of do it like a baseball game or an outdoor sport. If it's really raining hard, we'll sit in our cars. When the clouds, you know, part, we'll race out there and jump in the water, and uh, we're going to celebrate uh, the baptism. So hopefully you can make that. If you need prayer, we'll have people up front as well. And also, if you'd like to be baptized, uh, we are going to have another meeting right after this service. If you're just like, man, the Spirit's really proud of me. I need to do this, and I need to do this today. We want to make sure you have everything that you need. So my friends and family, as you leave here today, I pray that you would not be Balaam. I pray that you would learn to say yes to no, and that you would have the humility to hear the word no, that you would have the strength to walk that out and that you would have the courage to do what you need to do. Grace and peace be with all of you. Have a great week, take care.